My ex and I broke up for religious reasons. He believed he was God, and I did not. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shit show party peeps. How we doing? Are we alive? Are we breathing? Do we have a pulse? That reminds me, there was this woman, Judith Kay, with like a million years sober that went to one of the meetings that I went to in San Francisco. And she used to always share that. She would say, the first thing that I do when I wake up every morning in my bed is check to see that I got a pulse. And as long as I do, I know that it's going to be a good day. (laughs) (sighs) For any new people, I'm Andrea. I am a really big shit show. I am a recovering alcoholic. I am a recovering adult child. And if you're wondering what the hell an adult child is, well, allow me to tell you. I'll give you three definitions, okay? So the first one is This would be the definition that's used in the Big Red Book. So this is the primary text of the 12-step program, Adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Families. If you are new to this whole adult child thing, start there. Read that book first. But they define an adult child, someone who responds to adult situations with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior all as a result of their childhood experiences. Uh, Tion Dayton, I'll give you her definition. So she is one of the pioneers of the adult child movement. She's a psychotherapist. Uh, She would define an adult child as someone whose unresolved childhood pain surfaces and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way. And then I'll give you my personal definition. Let's see here. Um, An adult child is someone who, whose childhood caused them to believe lies about themselves, like, I'm unlovable, I'm unworthy, I'm inherently flawed, and these lies then prevent them from living as their best self and living their best life. And if you're wondering if you are an adult child... Uh, You probably are. I think there's like a 99.9% chance if you stumbled on this podcast that you're an adult child. There's people always say like, people don't end up in an AA meeting by mistake. You probably didn't land on this podcast by mistake. So you're probably an adult child. But guess what? That there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about that. So today we are diving deep into religious and spiritual trauma and abuse. So I am joined by Dr. Laura Anderson, not the Dr. Laura, although I I, I was considering just pretending like it was the actual (laughs) Dr. Laura, but you know, this is a whole program of like rigorous honesty, right? So that would be kind of fucked up. Um, So she is a psychotherapist that specializes in in this area, religious trauma, and she is a survivor herself of religious trauma and abuse. Now, the Big Red Book talks about how this is one of the other types of uh, dysfunctional family systems other than like alcoholism and addiction that can create an adult child. So 
an uber-religious family can produce an adult child. I think it's important whenever the topic of religion comes up that we note that I'm sure that there's some of you right now who are staunch atheists. Um, I'm sure that there's some of you listening right now who would consider themselves to be really religious. I'm sure there's some of you guys listening right now that have had horrible experiences with religion or religious leaders, and I'm sure that there are other of you where that has been an extremely um, positive influence on your life. And so I think it's important to note that like two things can be true. Uh, We can have a really bad experience with religion, and that can be absolutely true and valid, while at the same time that doesn't mean that you know, all religion is bad, or, you know, we can have a a bad experience or experience abuse from a religious or spiritual leader, and that is completely true and valid, but that doesn't mean that um, all religious or spiritual leaders are abusive. So just want to throw that in there. Um, So what the hell is religious abuse? So religious or spiritual abuse occurs when someone uses religious or spiritual teachings, beliefs, or practices for their own purpose and design to gain or maintain power and control over others. So here are some examples of what that could look like. So Using religious texts or words from God for one's own purpose and design to exert power and control over others. Being shame, gaslighted, or dismissed when disagreeing with your religious leaders or coming forward to report abuse. Uh, Using religious beliefs to control your behavior, including what you wear, who you date, what job you have, how you parent, or how you manage your finances. Um, Feeling forced or coerced to do things that you don't want to do, included but not limited to engaging in sex, giving money, sharing resources, etc. Being shamed, criticized, or ridiculed for your religious beliefs or practices. Minimizing or ridiculing mental health symptoms as sinful, demonic, or weak faith. Few religious leaders are trained in mental health, and yet they provide quote-unquote counseling to others, causing some to neglect the mental health support that they need. Um, Using religious belief and fervor to perpetrate violence, force others to convert to their religious beliefs or practices, or encourage a belief that one group is better than another for their beliefs and practices. And so here are a few signs that may indicate that you have experienced religious uh, abuse or trauma. You are confused about what you're being taught and are scared or uncomfortable with voicing questions for your beliefs. You attack, dismiss, and shame yourself if you have a differing belief or question your beliefs. You may dissociate or feel separated from your body and emotions due to fear of connecting with emotions and constant focusing outward to others and God. You constantly criticize and judge yourself due to the fear of sin and fear of upsetting God. You are afraid of being led astray by the devil or evil, and so you become afraid or critical of the outside world. You feel unable to or uncomfortable with saying no to others. Uh, For women, you might be afraid that your body is bad and others should not look at you, think you're beautiful, and it is your responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. 
For men, you might be afraid to get too close to a woman because then you will fall into sin by lusting after her and then you will have to marry her. (laughs) Um, And then last, you struggle to trust your own thoughts, feelings, and intuition because you have been taught the body is wrong or bad. So Laura is going to be sharing about her experience, the aha moments that she had along the way to realize that she was in an abusive situation, uh, what healing looked like for her, as well as just some other questions related to how the hell to heal from religious abuse and trauma. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's take care of some business. Okay. First, I just want to say I I need to give myself acknowledgement, right? Because we need to do that from time to time. It is 1220 right now that I'm recording this 1220 in the afternoon, (laughs) not midnight. Uh, This is pretty damn early for me. So I want to give myself a little pat, pat, pat on the back. I do feel like I've been making some strides with my uh, procrastination and self-sabotage type stuff. So got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, next, I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon pirate party peeps. Uh, this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups with a bunch of amazing shit shows. This is where you will feel seen, heard, and understood like never before. And this is also where you can have some fun, okay? Just because um, this recovery shit is hard, it can also be fun. And so this is a place where you can laugh and cry, um, be in pain, and also have fun. I'm not saying that the the group itself is going to inflict pain on you, but um, as we know, this adult child healing biz is, is painful at times. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Faith, Megan, Jess, Ambrielle, Catherine. Uh, I apologize in advance. I'm going to mess this up. Janika or Janique, Farah, Cal, Kathleen, Jennifer, Louise, Samantha, Brittany, Jody, Angela, Marissa, Kristen, Kate, Brandy, Layla, Mindy, Maggie, Caitlin, Aaron, and Tanya, you guys are the shit. How about the rest of y'all go follow suit? Patreon.com slash adult child. Yes, you that have been wanting to sign up for a while. Do it. I'm serious. Uh, next, give me a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok at adult child pod. Give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. And now... Now you are going to get to hear my share impersonation. And like I said last week, uh, fun for me. (laughs) Not sure if it's going to be so fun for you, but it's my damn podcast, right? So I get to do my share impersonation if I want to. Enjoy or not. What am I supposed to do? Sit around and wait for you when I can't do that. And there's no turning back I need time to move on I need love to feel strong Cause I've had time to think it through And maybe I'm too good for you Oh, do you believe in love? Alright guys, we've been talking about um, Bachelor, cults all the things, and so I figured we might as well just let you in on the conversation. 
So we have Dr. Laura Anderson. What if I just introduced you as Dr. Laura and made everyone think that you were Dr. Laura Schlesinger? I always have to make that differentiation. People are like, oh, Dr. Laura. I'm like, no, 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 not that one. (laughs) The other one. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're a, y'all, she's a psychotherapist and specializes in trauma. I was going to say, you need to, I'll have you be Dr. Laura and you need to talk in the accent. But then I realized I was thinking about, what was it? Dr. Ruth? Who was the one with the strong accent? Was that Dr. Dr. Ruth? Ruth had an accent and funny story. Like my very first office that I ever had. So this was like 12 years ago. Um, I live in Nashville. So there's like recording studios ever everywhere. There's always like famous people which is, but no paparazzi, which is kind of nice. Um, anyways, I walked down after sessions one day and like Dr. Ruth was in my parking lot. <laughs> so she was, uh, myself and another colleague saw her and, and chatted for a few minutes and she was doing some sort of a recording thing in one of like the spaces in our office building. So yes, Dr. Ruth. Um, I wonder if she's she, still alive. Did. I think she may have died like within the last year. Or was year. she like German or like Austrian? I think so. Yeah. Yes. I'm pretty sure. I can't remember exactly, but um, she was tiny and a spitfire. Uh, she must be alive. Oh, she was. Um, I didn't know that she was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, yes, I did know that. I knew she was Jewish. Um, that's part of her lineage and she's 94 she's still kicking it y'all still kicking yeah (laughs) probably not available for podcasts but (laughs) so I guess I must have met her when she was like in her early 80s just a young cool cool. um so religious trauma and abuse I have a lot of people in my community that have experienced such um on Saturdays, I have, they're called shit show Saturdays. And that's where my, my listeners share their stories. And so we've definitely had a few, a few cult, um, stories. I don't know if you saw, I had on, um, this guy who has the YouTube channel growing up in Scientology. I had him on a few months ago and that was really amazing for me. Kind of a Scientology junkie. Yeah, I am fascinated with Scientology. And it's interesting because, and I don't know, I I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like, I I do work with a lot of people coming out of what we definitely consider like traditional cults, but also like the definition of cult has really expanded, which I think is a good thing. Um, There used to be some very specific markers for like, what is a cult? And what we're starting to recognize is that there's there's dynamics and cults that are very present in many other groups that would not traditionally be considered a cult. And so we're moving more towards that language of like high control groups or systems or religions. Um, but I know for myself personally, like within my own story, it was through watching like the Scientology documentaries and all these things that were so easily labeled as cults. And I was like, huh, well, I grew up with those beliefs and I grew up in this type of system and the leaders did this thing and this thing. And it, and it was literally sitting at the, the Broadway show book of Mormon, like a decade ago after, you know, like when all this stuff was coming out and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I was, I think I grew up in a cult because like we believed all the same things. It's all the same. So, um, yeah, growing up in Scientology, I, I'm super fascinated to hear about it. I, I've, 
followed Leah Remini's journey very closely. So that's awesome. They just, they finally served David Miscavige a couple, I think a couple of days ago. That's um, awesome. for, but it was for, I think it's just the civil suit. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm very open in my community that I'm like definitely starting a cult. So I, I let them know <laughs> that, that my community that's the biggest thing um, is that you just you know the consent piece is very important yeah so, you know, <laughs> just putting like, it out there <laughs> i say one time i accidentally said instead of like join the damn patreon i said damn the join so <laughs> not to say damn the join so uh damn the join cult y'all yeah. um so i want to start with before we start at the beginning i want you to share about your aha moment mm. When was it that you realized that you had endured uh, religious abuse and trauma? Mm -hmm. You know, I have a few. It's so interesting. Um, When I think about the first time where I knew something was wrong, it was actually about uh, over 20 years ago. So I grew I grew up in like within in a high control religion. Um, I was in a ministry family. So my dad well, both my parents worked at a camp, like a fundamentalist Christian camp, and we lived there year round. Was the camp year round? It was. Yeah. So the bulk of the bulk of like the programming was in the summer, like when you could have like kids camps and stuff like that. But then every weekend there would be retreats and groups that would come to the camp. Um, and so in some ways, very idyllic childhood like not everybody has access to like a horse corral and a ropes course and a lake and so like I can look back with a lot of gratitude that there was some really cool pieces to my childhood and and then now being like but also (laughs) there's all these other pieces that like contributed to some really harmful stuff and so I grew up in all of that and there was kind of this um notion that like, especially for women, like you don't really need education because your goal in life is to be a wife and a mother, which that's not to knock anybody who wants that or is that, but there, it was just kind of like that, that's it. Like that's as, as far as you go, like, so why go to college and rack up student debts and, you know, whatever, when this is what you're going to do. And so, um, when, you know, I didn't, get married at like 19 or 20, obviously I had to do some other things, which included going to college and getting a job and whatever. And I actually ended up working at the church that I had grown up at. I was in a paid position, not paid very much, but still. Um, And that really was probably a couple months into that job that I, I've experienced like overt spiritual abuse but I did not have language for it at the time. So I could feel in my body, this is not right. There's something wrong here, but because of the teachings that I had uh, been led to believe, um, I knew like I couldn't speak up against authority that the, the person who was like perpetrating this against me because he was a pastor, like he was my literal authority in terms of like my boss, as well as my spiritual authority, which mean, meant he had wisdom that I, and knowledge that I didn't have and was closer to God, which meant that I really needed to listen to him. And so I can remember that very vividly. And yet I also could not do anything. It took a few more years to be able to get out of that situation. But then it took even many more years after that until I was really ready to have like the aha moment where I knew I had to do something. And truly 
that came um, a few months after I was um, I was in an abusive or domestically violent relationship, and um, I had finally ended it, like ended it, ended it. You know, like no more coming back. Kicked him out. And I remember sitting with my journal a few months after that, kind of going back through the pages and all of a sudden being very, very confused at like, who said what? Like, was this my abusive partner that said this Mm -hmm. or was this God that said this, Mm -hmm. right? And I couldn't differentiate. So when I'm hearing these messages of like, you're not worthy, like, Well, my partner said that to me, but that's also what I was taught that God thought about me. And so it it was one of these moments where I was like, there's something wrong here because I know that what he's been doing and saying to me isn't right. And yet it is the exact same thing that I've been led to believe about myself coming from this all-powerful creator God. And so I would say that that was probably one of my biggest aha moments where it was like, I can't stay here anymore. I have to do something. I didn't know what that would be, but I started taking steps to kind of untangle what had happened in a more formal way. I'd been kind of, kind of like leaving the church up till that point, but that was kind of the moment that I was like, okay, like I, I really have to dig into what happened here. And so was it through then that you were untangling from that relationship or were you already out of it? So I was physically out of it. Um, I, uh, he had left our home three months before he was still kind of trying to get back in, <laughs> um, you know, like a lot of perpetrators of violence. It's once, you know, ending the relationship doesn't mean the relationship's done. It's not over till they say it's over in so many cases. Mm-hmm. So I was still dealing with a lot of him showing up and, you know, calling and texting and all these things. Um, but, not, he was not physically present. And so I really was doing it though in tandem. Like as I was trying to heal from the impact of what had happened in that relationship, I'm also like peeling back all these layers. Like they seemed to me, it felt so intertwined. I couldn't like set aside the religious and spiritual stuff and just deal with the relational stuff or vice versa. It it was like, it was too closely intertwined. I just had to unpack it all together. This is Kiki. She has a nub tail. So I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. So we got both of our animals here. Um, So was that the, the person that you were in the relationship with? Was he, um, was he a part of the same religion? Yeah. Yeah. I actually met him at church. (laughs) So what national, what um, denomination was this? So when I moved moved here to Nashville, which is about 13 years ago, I started attending a Southern Baptist church. Uh, I had not attended a Southern Baptist church prior to that because I lived in the North. We didn't have Southern Baptist churches. Um, but yeah, so when I moved here, I went to this church, which was like labeled like progressive uh, Southern Baptist, which I don't even think that actually exists. I will say it was nice. I think that's maybe like an oxymoron. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah, no, you're not really all that different. The one thing I really appreciated that did act as a nice stepping stone was was the first experience I had in a religious institution where I was allowed to ask questions. Mm. And it was like my faith was not immediately doubted simply by asking questions. Mm. So I credit that time and even my partner um, as being highly influential in that faith uh, unraveling process because I felt like for the first time I had freedom to really understand what was going on. And really part of what attracted me to my ex-partner was that we could have those conversations and he encouraged 
me to think in different ways. And to this day, I can set aside all the abuse and I'm still grateful for that part of it. I do find that to be very influential for me. Yeah. And a part of your story, right? Like it all unfolded the way it was supposed to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm grateful for that. But yes, I did meet him at the church and um, I think he still goes there, but um, who knows? (laughs) Yeah. So Okay. So then like, let's back up. What are some very, um, pivotal memories, um, from childhood, I guess talk about kind of the, the, the brainwashing that occurred or, you know, especially when you, you, you made that comment that, that that's what you had been taught that God said that you were unworthy. If you just want to kind of go into that. Yeah. So the background that I come from believes in this specific line of theology. Uh, Some people call it like reformed theology. Other people call it Calvinism. It was started by a guy named John Calvin. Um, I can't remember what century, what, like the 1500s, 1700s, something like that. And there's kind of this, like these doctrines that kind of one follows the other in, in that line of theology, but it starts off with this belief that as humans, we are totally depraved from the moment that we are born, we are evil, sinful, unworthy. We don't even deserve the air that we breathe. And it's like setting you up to then have this like savior figure that you should be super duper grateful for that comes in and saves you. And, and that's called grace and love. And, you know, so, but we were never taught to be like, well, gosh, here's this creator who created us sinful. And now we're paying for something that we are created. That's a whole other conversation, but, but I just use that as a preface. Like that's, that was like the underlying foundation for how I grew up. And so it took me many years to recognize like how deeply woven into like my everyday ways of thinking and acting and relating. It causes a lot of judgmentalism and criticism towards self and others, right? Like if I assume if, if from the get go, I'm assuming that you're an evil, unworthy person, my actions will likely follow that both towards myself and towards other people. There'll be a high level of criticism, judgmentalism, fearfulness, inability to trust a lot of doubt, you know, like, and so like, that's a huge way that I can look back now and I can see in relationships, like that was just, it was very difficult to navigate. I think there's also a huge fear mentality. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize the level of anxiety that I constantly was living under, even for like making a simple mistake until I was out of it and was like, oh, I'm not scared to like, wear the wrong shirt. Um, everything in that system was like, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So, um, there was very specific ways that like romantic relationships were to come about. And so there was like, I remember I would stand in front of my closet in the morning, petrified, like what shirt should I wear? Because if my future husband like sees me, I want him to like, see what I'm wearing and be attracted and be like, wow, that's a godly woman because of like the shirt she's wearing. So what is a godly woman shirt? Well, it would be not showing too much skin, bra straps, cleavage, mm-hmm. not too tight, mm-hmm. um, pants where you, you know, like if you bend over, you can't see your butt crack or they don't hug your hips too much. Um, no slits that are too high. Um, nothing that would like show any sort of like a 
womanly figure with curves. So basically like a paper bag, like you should just yeah. like, like a, a burlap sack. That would be ideal, right? <laughs> you can't make people lust after you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was just, it was, it was little things like that. Pe- you know, people are like, well, you just like get over it. It was like a bad church experience. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to believe that. And that's true to an extent, right? Like it was a bad church experience, but when you're taught that like everything about you is constantly judged and you're evil and you're unworthy, like that impacts everything of how you see the world mm-hmm. and everything becomes really scary because it's always a chance to mess up. And then with that mess up comes consequences, not only here on earth, like from people, but there's always then this big consequence looming over you of eternal conscious torment in hell, your faith, your salvation is always questioned. So if you're going to wear these things that are like, not godly, then we're going to actually question if you're a believer and if you're actually going to heaven or not. And so there's always this constant like internal battle too, of trying to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do so that ultimately I can go to heaven. Mm. Um, so it's, it's scary. Like, and it's even hard to think back of onto because like that remembering like the anxiety of that is like very, like, it's very easy to be like, Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. That was, that was like a really yucky time. Um, and I'm sad for like my younger self that had to endure so much of that. And for so many other people as well. So were your parents raised in that sect? Yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, both sides, both my mom's family and my dad's family. Yeah. How, how large of, um, like of a congregation or in the U S how many, is it just Calvinisms? Is that what, what it is called? You said reformed. What is it? Reformist or reformed? So, um, I think the way that it would be probably most colloquially understood present day would be like evangelical Christianity. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the exact percentage of our population is. I do know that it's on the decline. So we like in the US, they'll say, you know, th- there's a certain percentage, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. quite a high percentage. I want to say it's between 60 and 70 percent that would like identify themselves as Christian. And then within that, I want to say there's somewhere between 20 and 25 percent that would say I am evangelical Christian. So what do you know about your parents' upbringings? Uh, In terms of like their faith background or... Trauma, anything. I mean, all this is generational, right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, given like the scope of this podcast, um, my my maternal grandfather was an alcoholic um, until he met God, right? And then he never had a sip of alcohol again. Is Uh, alcohol not allowed? No. I mean, well, some groups would say yes. <laughs> like, okay. like the way that you were raised? The way I was raised, absolutely not. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I I think I had like, <laughs> it was like 19 or 20. What were they called? Like, like wine coolers. Is that like fuzzy navel or something? There's like, it, they're so gross, right? But I was like, oh, I'm such a rebel. And then felt horribly guilty because I was underage and I was drinking. Um, so then I waited till I was like 28 to like drink a glass of wine. Um, but yeah, so I, um, my grandfather on that side came from a very, very abusive home, like physically abusive. And interestingly was connected to the Jehovah's Witness, uh, denomination of religion. And, um, 
in all of that, somehow my grandfather and some of his brothers were introduced to like evangelical Christianity and really latched onto that. That's when my grandfather then stopped drinking because like God took that desire away from him, which I can respect on the one hand. I, I'm like, I think it's really beautiful that he has that story. And then on the other hand, as, as you know, like substance abuse, addiction, these sorts of things is not just the substance and the thing that you're using. Mm -hmm. There's so much more. There's reasons why you even used that. Mm -hmm. So when that stuff is not addressed, it does trickle out in other ways. And so from the stories that my grandparents and my mom and her siblings have shared, I know that it was not an easy upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that even though they would say, we love God, I know there is a lot of other abusive and neglectful behaviors. I don't know as much about my dad's side of the family. They're very tight-lipped other than knowing that they were very, very strict and um, very silent. So there was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of abuse and there was a lot of, we don't talk about this. Um, and so I will sometimes be able to have bits and pieces of conversations um, where more information is revealed, but that side of my family remains fairly um, secretive. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up on this camp. Were there, were you in the middle of nowhere? Kind of. Yeah. Like, did you go to like regular school or no? Luckily, yes. And I, I really, I'm really grateful for it. So I grew up in the North. I grew up in Minnesota and they are known for having a really great school system. My mom is an educator by training. And so she made excellent choices um, in terms of our education and sent us to public school. She actually was a teacher as well. Um, and so I feel like I got a really good education because of that. There was a point where I begged my parents to be homeschooled mm. because I was so afraid of the influence that like my peers could have on me that would like pull me away from God and get me to do all these sinful things because we were really warned like constantly about how the devil will try to like bring you down and pull you down and get you to sin and put you in contact with all these people who are just who like delight in bringing you down. And I remember by the time I was like in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, somewhere in there, I was really terrified to be in public, to be with friends because I thought mm. I'm like, this is going to be a really, like, I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to be, you know, all these things are going to happen and I'm going to totally slip and I'm not going to be a good witness. And so um, ultimately my parents decided that that was not going to be a thing, you know, homeschooling. And I can look back now and I'm very grateful that they opted for that. Um, but yet that's, that was very real. I was very scared to be in a public setting um, because I just, I, I didn't want to sin. <laughs> I was terrified of what would happen if I did. Um, so yeah. Uh, but, but educationally wise, it was okay. Just in the sense of being in public schools, but I also lived in a very rural part of the state. And so there's a bit of sheltering that way too. So what was the, what was the environment like in your home? I mean, what was the relationship like between your parents? Like, did you have siblings? Was it abusive? Yeah. I was, uh, I'm the oldest of four siblings. Okay. Um, so I, I do know it's, it's kind of weird. And I, I know I'm not the only one who is like this. I don't have a lot of clear memories of my childhood. 
I can make guesses now as to why that is. Uh, but in terms, like when somebody says, oh, we did this, like in childhood or whatever, those will come back sometimes from time to time, but I don't remember things unless somebody's telling me or if I'm looking at photos. So there's a lot where I'm like, to answer that question, there's a big, like, I don't know. Like, I don't remember a lot growing up. I remember feeling lots of anxiety. I remember feeling confused a lot. I do remember being a very emotional child. And I remember getting in trouble for that a lot. Mm. I remember being spicy. <laughs> um, like, you know, and now my parents are like, you were passionate. I was like, oh, no. But back then you called it like sassy and disrespectful and whatever. I've always had an opinion and I'd got in trouble for it a lot. Um, and I also remember a lot of pressure as the oldest child, which I don't know that this is just because of religion. I just remember a lot of pressure as the oldest child to be the example and to, and I was always told, you know, your, your siblings are looking up to you. So mm -hmm. there's more pressure. Um, so I remember those things, but like when we talk about favorite memories or vacations or whatever. I really struggle with that. I don't remember. And interestingly, I do know that my siblings share that um, for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. We've, we've had conversations before and it's kind of like, we don't really remember what was going on. Yeah. So when you talk, spoke about having the um, abusive boss, Mm -hmm. So what was that situation? Yeah. So I worked at this church. I was in a part of the youth ministry program. Where were you? Uh, Central Minnesota, Brainerd, Minnesota. So it's like Northern Minnesota, but not quite all the stereotypes. Okay. <laughs> Just close to all the stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. So um, I... The, the, my boss, so there was two, uh, youth pastors. The one I worked for was this very charismatic person that you really wanted to be in relationship with, that you wanted to earn their favor. And I now know that he is a narcissist and that he has some very controlling aspects to his personality. I would say he creates a very controlling environment. I also have spoken to many other people who are under his kind of influence that would say the same thing. Um, and so he worked alongside another pastor who I had less contact with, but was every bit as controlling. And so in that environment, a pastor is considered a spiritual authority, which is kind of the top of the hierarchy. So if you're talking, you know, like they're kind of, I know this is a podcast, you can see like it's up here and everybody else is kind of below them. Um, so what they say goes. And so if they say you did this or you can't do this, or this is what is true or real, their word holds more weight. There's not to be questions. There's not really room for accountability or dialogue. And especially if you are a woman, um, you are taught to outsource all of your choice. There's no autonomy. There's no ability to connect inwards, like intuition. That's all supposed to be shut down. So the first instance of spiritual abuse that I can remember was this one pastor in particular who was screaming at me for something that he said I did. 
not only did I not do it, I knew who did do it. And it was his own assistant who was sitting right next to me watching all of this and listening to all of this happen. And I tried to tell him like, hey, this this was not my area of responsibility. And he would not believe me and started screaming that I was a liar, that I could not be trusted. And that if I told anybody what he said and what he was doing, that I would be going against my spiritual authority, which would mean I was sinning. And so I had to keep silent. And I was at the time passionate enough and like zealous enough that I was like, I cannot stay silent about this. This was not okay. I know that this was not right. And I, I took a break. I left. I like went and drove somewhere. I phoned a family member and they were like, no, you have to listen to him. Mm. And I was so devastated. And I went back to the office and I talked to my boss who happened to be out of the, the office at the time, but the pastor that I was reporting directly to. And he just looked at me and he said, you need to go apologize and make things right. And mm. I remember thinking like, but that that's a lie. Like I didn't do those things. And yet I also knew in that moment that if I did not do that, I would lose my job, which meant I would lose my community, my entire support system, my sense of identity, everything that I had worked for up until that point. And I was young, but still at 19, 20 years old, like that's, that's a terrifying thing to think about. And so I just said, okay, And I went and I apologized and, um, and like, I feel like that was like the downward descend because it was in, it's like in those moments, it's like that the people in charge know like, all right, we just have to do and say this or demand this to get what we want. And that will, that will allow us more power and control over this person. And so I can look back now and see that's exactly what happened. And so then how did it all unravel? Um, It unraveled a few years after that. I was uh, dating somebody that the church leadership did not approve of. Was he part of the church? Yep, he was. Um, Why did they not approve? He was a little bit younger than I was. I know now that the reason that they didn't approve was because my direct pastor that I was reporting to was losing control over me. That because I was dating somebody else, I was valuing their words. I was valuing their opinions. I was making my own choices and it was not what this other person wanted. And so I was punished and I would like, I had, lots of like relationships taken away from me. I was bad mouthed. I was blacklisted. I was. How were relationships taken away from me? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So there's a lot of rumors that were started about me. There's a lot, they would go to different people that I was close to and say, Hey, Laura is, um, you know, living in sin. She's doing X, Y, and Z. She's not submitting to church authority, church leadership. She's not a safe person to be in relationship with or for you to have your kids around. You need to cease all contact. Not only that, if you do have contact, you need to report back to us immediately. It's like Scientology, just like Scientology. Exactly that. It's exactly that. So you start to see these like dynamics, right, of power and control that are popping up. And I think what is even more of um, messes with you is they do it under this umbrella of God, right? Like we're the spiritual authority. So not only do we know it's best for you, this is coming straight from God's mouth. And so you need to respect and listen to us because 
spiritually, that's what you need to do. But also there's eternal consequences if you don't do these things. So that's where it starts to become really, really messy. Um, and, and that's why it's so hard to leave a system like that. That with that, that particular boyfriend, that was the reason that I ended up quitting that job. Because you wanted to stay in a relationship with him? It was getting, so here's the weird part. I knew by the time that I had quit the job, I knew also knew I wanted to break up with this guy, but I knew that I had to do it separately. I knew that I like one could not influence the other. Um, that relationship is what made me realize how bad it was at the church, but I didn't want I wanted there to be a very clear delineation that breaking up with him was my choice mm. and not because of any of the influence of any of these spiritual leaders. And so I did, I quit my job. And were you scared to death? I was scared to death. Yeah. It, it, for two reasons. Um, I had planned to leave the community entirely, like move about two and a half hours away. I applied to graduate school and some other jobs. Um, all of it was very promising. And then one by one, people started calling me and they're like, hey, we're so sorry. This job is not available anymore. We're going a different direction. No, you're not accepted to this school program. Later, I found out it was because the church leaders had been contacting all of these people to, to say like, she's dangerous. Do not hire her. Do not let her come to your school, those sorts of things. And so that was, of course, then was very scary because then I was like, I feel trapped here. And then the other scary part about it was because of how much my name had been like thrown into the mud, essentially, when the announcement was made that I was putting my position, there was all sorts of accusations and rumors that were flying around and nobody did anything to stop it. So but what I, about when you said like when you like actually resigned, mm -hmm. like what was that interaction like or what did you say or how was that received? Yeah. So it's interesting. My boss, who I also thought was like one of my best friends, that's mm -hmm. what made this so difficult, too. He looked at me and he was like, I'm so relieved. And I kind of looked back at him with this like question. And he's like, he's like, because I was going to have to fire you for like not um, doing what I wanted you to do. Which was break up with the boy. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. What I realized in that moment was that they could not fire me for who I was dating because we weren't doing anything wrong. I was also a part of what we now call purity culture. And it's this very much like very rigid rule. So like, I didn't even kiss him. Like I, we were going to not kiss until we got married. That was like, so, I mean, I think he had like maybe kissed me on my cheek or hand, you know, so it's, so it's like, they couldn't fire me for any of that. Like I wasn't acting immorally, but I mean, for all you know, you get married and the guy doesn't even have a penis. Like, you know, <laughs> could be a possibility, right? <laughs> and so the reason, though, that I uh, what I recognize what my boss was saying to me in that moment is like, you know, good. I did because I didn't want to have to fire you was they were saying because he was my quote unquote spiritual authority, my boss. He didn't want me to date this person. And so because I was doing that anyways. I was going against his leadership and that was the sin that they could fire me for. Were people going directly to your boyfriend as well? No, no, of course not. <laughs>
<laughs> no. Um, it they were going to the pastors about me. Um, and that was part of it because he was um, I think he was like about two and a half years younger than I was, or three years younger than I was. Um he and he um is a much more laid back person, like not somebody who you would consider be like that type A personality, you know, gets shit done, whatever. And I am more of that. And so what their reasoning was is that if push came to shove, I would not let him be the leader of our relationship, that I would bulldoze him because as a woman, I'm supposed to be submissive and quiet and, you know, deferring to my husband for all decisions and everything like that. And they're like, you are too much. You're going to bulldoze him. You're not going to respect him. And you should not be in a relationship with him. There's no way that he can control you. That was literally said to me. He will not be able to control you. And so that was that was the that was like the big thing, right? Like Laura needs to be with somebody who can control her. And I I mean that was said to me. I said, I needed to be with somebody who had a backbone, who could put up with me because I'm a lot to handle, like really awful things. And they were saying this to me as a way to try to like get my attention Mm -hmm. uh, so that I would come back to God and come back to their way of believing. Mind you, I didn't think I was straying from God. Like I was still reading the Bible and doing all the things that I was supposed to do. I just wasn't listening to what they wanted in one area of my life. So that drove me out the door. Did you have anybody that you could talk through this stuff with? Like, were you communicating with your, like, were you just having to do this all on your own? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the toughest things because I really, like, I wanted to be honest with people, but at some point I knew that anybody I talked to was reporting back to the church leadership. So I knew that there wasn't really a lot of safety. And I also knew that everybody in my orbit, and this is how a lot of high control groups work, is they very much isolate you from the outside world. So your closest friends, the people that you talk to, the people that you are doing life with, for lack of a better term, on a day-to-day basis, are all in this group. So when something happens where the where you're kind of going against the group, you literally have no support system. And that is tactic of control Uh is to isolate you from all other support. And so I didn't have anybody. Um, I do remember after I quit my job, I I took like a kind of a temporary job at a community college working. And I remember, I think I was there for probably about 15 months and kind of like the back half of like when I was working there, I had started to get to know a couple people. And so I like just shared little tiny bits of, of a few things that had happened. And I remember them being like, they were just like, you experienced what? And, and I had no concept that there was, that that was not okay. I felt it in my body, but I didn't, I didn't have anybody else mirroring back to me. Like, that's not okay for you to be treated that way. Um, and so it really wasn't until then that I was like, huh, okay. I, I don't know what to do with that, but I can at least validate that. Like this wasn't something was wrong here. Right. It's pretty miraculous that you even had the courage to, to walk, like, especially growing up on it, not having anyone 
um, to support you through the walking away process. I mean, that's pretty like, I think that just shows like a level of, of strength that was within you. Was there a concern that your family was going to cut you off? Yes and no. You know, a lot of people that come out of systems like this, that is one of the biggest concerns. They're like, you know, my family is because, because it is taught like in a lot of these groups that like, you might have to cut off your family members if they're not believing that, you know? And so for as much as there's angst and confusion, you know, my family still is in this, all of them. And I think, I think this starts from like my, my maternal grandparents, really did despite their rigidity of like their beliefs and theology they really did model like a human relationship over theology type thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so they were always people that were like we love you we might not approve what you're doing but we love you and and I think that the rest of my family very much caught on to that so that's great it was (laughs) that's surprising Yeah, I did have a lot of really negative experiences with family members that were reporting back to the church. um, And that took, took and still has taken, I mean, we're, we're talking, this was 15, 20 years ago, and there's relationships that are still not the same um, because that was such a wound. Um, And, and it really caused a division that cannot be repaired Um, but I am not ostracized for my family in terms of like, um, I know there's certain things I'm not included on and that's okay. But for the most part, um, my family has found ways to support me and I, them. That's amazing. Well, especially considering your voice, you know, and that this has kind of become your soapbox. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. surprised. <laughs> I asked most of them to just like not follow me on social media because <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I think that's going to be better for our relationship is that you just don't follow me. I don't speak about my family on social media. So like if you read my posts and everything like that, the most anybody would hear is that I have a family. Like that's it. Like, you know, I'll say like my family or this. I don't talk about how I grew up. I don't talk about where I don't talk about any of them in particular. And that's on purpose, of course. Um, but in terms of like the religion piece, so many people that are religious find that to be their entire identity. And so they do take huge offense. Then if I'm saying something that they might perceive as negative within religion, there's that persecution complex and that can be very offensive. And so I have asked my family and other friends to just not follow me uh, because I'm like, I think it's going to be best for our relationship if we, if we just don't do that. <laughs> well, that's, a, I mean, that's amazing. Cause I mean, there's like a lot of people listening right now who like, they're not even voices for this and their parents will cut them off just for like going to therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's one of those things where I know that certain conflicts need to be addressed and conversations need to happen and boundaries need to happen. And then there's also, and I would tell this to any of my clients, there's also like, sometimes you need to just like, it, it's okay to like block your family on social mm-hmm. media. If your relationship would be better off with them not having access to that part of your life, um, whether that is like social media or talking about therapy or whatever it is, like that's okay. You don't have you don't owe them that part of you in order to be in a relationship. And I think that's really important for people to know. Yeah, I yeah, it's a conversation that we have a lot uh, often. 
And I think that sometimes too, um, it's best for people to, for some people to cut contact completely while they're going through that initial phases of healing. And once they've kind of worked through some of that stuff, they can then assess whether or not um, it's healthy for them to be in a relationship. Cause it's kind of similar, like in Mm -hmm. in a sense to like, if you're trying to get sober and like, you're still hanging out in a bar. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You do sometimes need a break. Right. And you know, the thing is with trauma, especially, which I know is underneath so much of like addictive behaviors, Mm -hmm. all that trauma is so isolating anyways, you know, and like when we're hurt in the context of relationships, even though we know like we need to heal within relationships, it is so scary. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of saying there's usually a time where you need to just let yourself take a step back and whether you want to call that isolation or, or just a break or whatever, but to put those boundaries up and say like, you know what, Hey, bar friends or family or whatever, like I, I'm working on myself. I've got to figure out a different way how to navigate this. And so for a while I need to take the step back and that might mean we have to do some repair work later, but I'm willing to do that rather than to continue the patterns that I've already set in this relationship. That's hard. That's way easier said than done, but I think it's really important. So as part of healing, I mean, Mm -hmm. did a lot of anger come up towards your family and how did you deal with that? Yeah, I love anger. Um, (laughs) So it's like my favorite. I, of course, was never allowed to like feel or express anger as a child. I think not just for religion, I think as a woman and socialize as female in this culture where, you know, anger is not becoming of a woman. Uh, I say that sarcastically. Um, I've really learned how to befriend my anger and it's been a very important part of healing. Anger shows us that what happened to us was not okay. It tells us that something important or valuable has been violated. It shows us where the pain is. And so to not allow ourselves to feel anger means that we're still living in a level of denial about what happened to us. Mm -hmm. And so for me, anger does not scare me anymore. I have my ways of dealing with it that feel really, really helpful. But there was some major things like transformation that happened when I finally let myself start going there. Um, when I finally let myself start, um, expressing the anger and then letting the anger help dictate my actions and my boundaries and conversations. Um, anger gets a really bad rap (laughs) because everybody thinks it's like so destructive when in reality, it's just an emotion. No, what we do with it could be destructive or, helpful. And so if we can use that anger to help us determine where the boundaries need to be or to determine what equality looks like in a relationship or what justice looks like, I think that anger can be a really wonderful tool to help with that. But so talk about though, like the anger that came up directly towards your family. Cause I would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's ongoing. <laughs> So, um, I go in spurts. Um, I want to be really careful to not be exploited. I know, but well, one thing I'm wondering, and and obviously I'm, I'm always like, do you feel like there was a part of you or is a part of you that maybe, um, has it more directed 
misdirected towards the religion versus your family? Yeah. Yes. Ish. Yeah. Um, for a lot, well, I, I guess I should say for a long time. Yes. Um, and I think there was some other things going on with different family members that kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of like blocked me from processing mm-hmm. that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there did come a point several years ago where I was like, okay, I kind of had this idea of like, okay, I'll just like process everything around it. And then hopefully that'll like take care of this other stuff too. Some ways it did, right? It's like when I learned how to set boundaries, like that instantly transferred over to like different family members and stuff like that. So, so that work was not in vain, but there did come a point where I was like, I have to address these other things head on. And I was already familiar with feeling anger and that felt safe to feel it. For me, there was so much more hurt. Um, feelings of betrayal, which of course, anger does go hand in hand with that. Yeah, but it it masks it. Yeah, it was much easier in a lot of cases for me to feel the anger. I I do what I call Mm -hmm. rage walking. Mm -hmm. So like I'll walk on this like path where nobody else is on and I will imagine some person next to me, like whoever I'm angry at, and I will let it out. And, And it's wonderful. And it I took like a lot that. of time to get used to it, right? Cause and to become familiar and feel okay to like express my anger. But I realized it was nonviolent. It was honest and authentic. And it allowed me to gain so much clarity and freedom. But I think sometimes what's harder under that was a deep sense of sadness and hurt and betrayal that I really did have to let myself sink into. Um, because yes, there was anger. I was violated. Those things should not have happened to me. For me, the bigger impact was in the hurt and betrayal that came from that. Um, anger felt like the easier thing to work through. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers. No, no, yeah, no. And I guess when I say when I say anger, I I mean hurt. I mean just the, oh, fe- the feelings yeah. of loss and yeah, mm-hmm. of because in many ways your childhood was robbed from you. Yeah, and I think too, and this not just for me, this would be for anybody. Like to me, I don't view like a fixed point of healing as well as grieving or feeling things or whatever. And so there are many times, you know, even recently where it's like, I I have this big confusion or this event happens or whatever. And it's like, I want to be able to call this person or I want to have this person Mm -hmm. as a support or whatever. And I realize I don't, or it never is going to be that way. And that fantasy brings that all up again. Right. And it's like, I I go through the anger and the grief and the sadness and all over again. And it's one of those things where I don't get caught in it anymore, but it's important for me to honor that every single time I go through it, um, to not just like stuff it down. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're like, no, it really does suck. Like, I don't have to pretend that it doesn't, it sucks that this has happened and that I don't have this person or person's as a support, as people that I can count on. And that I, that I don't know that that will ever end. Well, that, yeah, I was going to say that too. I don't know if that will ever end. I think that like, there probably always is going to be a time where, and I just had an experience with that a couple months ago where I kind of slipped into some behaviors in this, just in that fantasy that like to have the kind of relationship with my parents that I so desire that I have. And you know, every once in a while to creep up on me. And, and then I remember, but it is, it's just that it's yeah. that fantasy and it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Because, you know, even 
even though I'm an adult, you're, I think you're an adult too. You know, like we're, we're still always somebody's kid. We're still always the child of somebody else. And there's never that, even though we grow up, that never goes away. That need for parental love and support and uh, attachment like that's always inside of us. And, and for those of us who aren't able to get that from our parents, we do have to do other work of healing that inner child, of reparenting ourselves and finding other supports that can step into some of those nurturing and supportive roles. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that like your gut inclination is always going to be like, but I want these people to be the yeah. one. You know, like I think about even when it's like, if you have the flu, it's like the, you could be 75 years old. And it's like, I want my mom, right? Like you just, it's there's, that's not a fault uh, that somebody needs to grow out of or get over. I think that's very like innate to like the human connection and attachment process. And so part of it is learning to accept and have compassion that mm -hmm. that's just always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I might always grieve that. And I need to then also find ways that do help do support people that can stand in the, that gap. So when we're talking about healing from religious trauma and abuse, mm -hmm. what are some, some nuances there or yeah. how do you, is there, do you approach a client differently when that is in the, in the um, story in the picture? I actually really appreciate that question because most people are like, well, what's religious trauma? And I'm like, well, it's trauma. <laughs> um, so, but there, so on the one hand, I, I do say like religious trauma is trauma, religious abuse is abuse. And so when we look at like how our bodies hold trauma and, and you know, fight, flight, freeze, like, that doesn't necessarily differ whether it's stemming from religion or war or developmental stuff, right? And so that part is the same in terms of like how we resolve that. But when we look at like this recovery process, mm -hmm. I do think that there's some unique pieces to it. The same way we might say like, Hey, if I'm working for, um, with a survivor from like, who has uh, like a uh, PTSD from war, um, there might be some very specific things that we're working through that say like somebody who has um, endured sexualized violence we might not have to work with and vice versa, right? So mm -hmm. the context where from where the trauma results from, that does play a part. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's true with religion, whether we're talking about like religious trauma, or religious abuse, there are some very unique things within that realm that we go, hey, we need to be on, on the lookout for, for this. And it could be everything from like really helping survivors like find a, their own voice and tap into their own sense of intuition and instead of outsourcing constantly, um, which I know goes beyond just for like religious trauma, or religious abuse, but like that might be something that could be a bit more unique, finding boundaries, something that is very, I think very unique to religious abuse and religious trauma really is what we might call like arrested development. There's a lot of people that grew up in systems like this that getting out of it um, are very behind developmentally. Uh, so they might not have a lot of like relational skills. So for instance, uh -huh. if you've grown up in a religion or cult your entire life, you learn this is how you relate to people. You talk to them like this, you do these things, you don't do these things, but it all serves the purpose of the group. So then to move out into the quote unquote real world where there's 
<laughs> that's not going to work. There's a lot of um, arrested development in terms of how do we relate to other people? How do we navigate conversations? How do we plan things? How do we make a schedule and stick to it? How, you know, like, so there are some of those things that kind of fit into those developmental categories that I think people coming out of these high control religions or high control systems groups um, do have to deal with that not everybody is prepared for, meaning like clinically speaking. So there's religion has tended to um, like psychologically speaking, be what's called a pro-social or supportive factor. So when you look in the literature and the resource, mm -hmm. the research, people are like, oh, religion is great. It provides community and connection and purpose. And it certainly can for some people, but they don't talk about the dark side or the harmful side. And so there's a lot of people that are coming, like clinicians and therapists and psychologists that are like, oh, it's just a bad church experience, not understanding the gravity of the dynamics of power and control, how far behind somebody might be uh, developmentally, relationally that their whole entire identity was wrapped up in this thing and they do not know who they are or how to function outside of it. I think that's something that's really important needs to be known and is often not thought of, but is a unique factor in the healing process. So let's say somebody has endured religious trauma or abuse and they're um, looking to find a therapist. Mm -hmm. What are some good questions to ask a potential okay. therapist? I think that's such a good question. Um, first of all, I would say like, are they a trauma trained clinician? That's something important to ask about. And when I say, so we trauma informs, that's kind of a buzzword, right? Yes. Yes. There's a difference between being trauma informed and trauma trained. You can be one and not the other. Hopefully we're finding somebody who's both. I but. mean, isn't like, I feel like if you're trauma trained, aren't you also trauma informed? You would not think. necessarily, no, fairly. Yeah. Can you, can you explain the difference? Yeah. So the, the very first trauma modality that I was ever trained in was probably like 10, 12 years ago. And, um, in part, we just didn't have the research that we do today. Um, but there was no understanding of like how trauma, plays out relationally, psychologically, all these ways, if it didn't fit within like this specific, like PTSD criteria mm -hmm. with this, like transpiring single event that happened, people didn't really know how to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, they also, um, like to be trauma informed recognizes how somebody's behaviors and attitude and relationships all kind of, um, play into like a, survival process for lack okay. of a better term. And so if you're not understanding that you're maybe compartmentalizing or fragmenting a person, there was a trauma trained therapist that I went to who is absolutely not trauma informed. Um, an example of this would be, um, I went to her for, to, to do brain spotting, uh, which is a great modality of therapy. She was trained in it and was at a very high level. And, um, we were going through some of like the coping mechanisms that I had, and I had gotten rid of a lot of them. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't out partying. I wasn't having like risky relationships, like all these things. My main coping mechanism was like 
voraciously reading and researching, like trying to dissect every little symptom, every little everything, right? It was like the only thing that I had to try to like cope with what was going on. And she looked at me, she's like, yeah, you just got to stop doing that. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't want Stop to you, lady. anything. And I was like, and I looked at her, I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Instead, and I'm like, I don't have any, like I already stopped all the ones that were like really negatively impacting me. This is all I have left. That would be an example of like a non-trauma informed approach because that clinician is not yeah. realizing like, Hey, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't need to be researching everything, but I have zero other coping skills. I have zero other ways to regulate my nervous system. This is the one thing I have. Let's not take that away. <laughs> Let's yeah, let's leave that until there's more resources. Yeah, lady, come on. Right? <laughs> there's a difference there. So we are looking for somebody who would ideally be both trauma-informed and trauma-trained. Trauma-informed is wonderful, but if you're not trauma-trained, you can do a lot of damage to somebody. Yeah. Um, a lot. I, and I have a lot of clients in my office that have been severely harmed by very well-meaning, compassionate therapists who had no business getting into some of these things. What is the concern there? Yeah. So when we, and this is, I think the problem sometimes with social media as well. Um, so when I talk about many, (laughs) yes, trauma trained, like, okay. So if if you and I are in a session together Mm -hmm. and I'm noticing you're getting really, really activated or starting to dissociate. Yeah. Right. I have a lot of education and tools to get you back into the room to help you feel grounded, to help you feel safe in your body and to end at a place where you're less activated, where you're not feeling like I'm going to peel my skin off. I'm going to go do something harmful to myself or somebody else or whatever. Like I know how to do that. I know how to help you resolve that. Somebody who is not trauma trained might be able to get you really activated, but doesn't know mm-hmm. what to do with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They go, oh, well, we opened the can of worms. Bye, see you next week. And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> right? like, that, that's really, really hard for individuals. And and so I, I work with individuals where their, their previous therapist or coach was very well-meaning, very compassionate and empathetic and understood that this person had a lot of trauma, but did not know how to deal with it. And so as they were processing, like they opened up this can of worms that they had no idea how to handle. And so that's, so the ideal would be that we'd have somebody who is both trauma informed and trauma trained. That's a very important, whether it's trauma from religion or something else, that would be a great question. It's like, if you were to go to EMDR and they didn't do the necessary pre-work, like to make sure that you're grounded and just went directly into doing it. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly it. It's basically like asking you to cannonball into a pool that you have no idea how to swim in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when you look at like the prep work with EMDR or somatic experience or some of these trauma modalities, we're dipping our toe in the water. Mm -hmm. We're becoming familiar with it. We're learning the strokes. We're learning where to step out and find safety. We're learning all these things so that all of a sudden we can go and swim in what might be murky waters, might not feel comfortable or ideal, but we also know how to get over, get out of it. So we know we're not going to drown. Mm-hmm. And that I think is like a really good analogy for like what the importance of like trauma informed and trauma trained is because we can do that process versus just like 
I'm going to launch you into this pool. Hope you make it to the side. You know, like that's not great. Um, but yeah, so that would be a big thing. Going back to your question of like, what do people look for? Mm-hmm. I also like to have people. Um, I, I think that religious trauma in terms of like, as a field of study is much newer, like because of what I said before, it's traditionally been viewed as this like pro-social thing. So people are just starting to learn about it. But if you have a clinician who can say, yes, religious trauma is trauma, and I can use all of those trauma resources and the nervous system and all those things, I would say that's a really good clinician, even if they don't understand the ins and outs specifically of your religion. Okay. Um, I think it's important to ask people what their experience is in working with people who have been in like relationships with abusive people or narcissists if and how they understand dynamics of power and control. Um, Those are really important because those play into how a person functions in an environment like that. And then the recovery work that they're going to have to do as a result of it. And then I also think another important thing to address would be like, do like, do you believe religion can cause or can result in trauma and is not simply just a bad church experience? Like Mm. are you able to see the difference? I live in the South and oh, I mean, I know you do too, where it's very religious, like the expectation, it's like, what's your name and what church do you go to? Right. And it sounds so funny, but like, that's literally what people do. And so um, it's not like that here. (laughs) That's good. So there's a lot of therapists though, that are like that. That cannot, yeah, and they don't separate mm. um, their own beliefs, their own religion, even though they're supposed to, right? They don't separate their own preferences mm-hmm. and values from what they're bringing into the room. And so, a client might share this instance of spiritual abuse, for instance, and they would go, "Oh, but you know, that's not God. That's people, and people are imperfect, but God is perfect, right? You just need to like." latch onto my version of God. And then like, I I think you'll have a much better, uh, much better experience of church. And that's just so unhelpful. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say so. Well, that actually is a beautiful lead into what I wanted to ask you next, as far as what does your relationship today look like with spirituality? And how has that evolved over time throughout your healing? Yes. Uh, you'll probably not be shocked to learn that I really hate labels because yes. <laughs> um, like, I feel like a label is such a box that it's like, okay, I say if I'm this, then it means all these other things about me. And I lived with that labels for such a long time that I'm kind of like, I don't like that. Um, what I will say is I'm not anti-religion. I think that that can quickly get into a fundamentalism all of its own, right? You know, so if religion or is, you know, fundamentalist high control to then just like swing to the opposite side of the spectrum and it's all bad and it mm-hmm. always gets these things like that, that to me is just as fundamentalist or just as religious, just with a different message. Exactly. Um, I am anti-harm, anti-power, anti-control, anti-oppression, anti-abuse, like all those sorts of things. So if you can find a religion that isn't those other things, please. You're down. Yeah. You know? Okay. So (laughs) I don't don't have a personal label for myself. I don't have, I I have some spiritual practices. Like uh, I consider journaling a spiritual practice. That's something that I have had my entire life uh, that I'm very, very grateful for. Um, 
but in terms of like my own, like, do I do anything formally? Is there a community that I go to? No, I don't. I I hold an open hand. Like if that were to, like, I do miss the community aspect of it. Um, but I'm not willing to like go after that and then have all this other stuff, but that's my own personal thing. But I did definitely go through a journey of kind of like slowly stepping out of religion, like trying on different spirituality things, whether it was like a more progressive form of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, some other kind of like world religions. I can really appreciate various things from all sorts of different paths. I just don't personally want to subscribe to only one. Yeah. I think probably what is difficult often is, um, in a religion like you were brought up in Mm -hmm. there, you really aren't taught to develop a personal relationship with a higher power, you know, all rules. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's about learning how to connect on a personal level with whatever that may be the universe, higher power, God, whatever the hell you want to call it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because evangelical Christianity like hangs its hat on like, it's a relationship and not a religion, but it's Mm -hmm. like, but it's not, it's a set of rules that you have to follow. And if you don't, there's consequences. So you're right. There is no development of self. There's no development of critical thinking. There's no development of intuition, authenticity, anything like that. So you're learning all of that. And Quite honestly, I see this a lot in social media spaces with my clients. They come out of systems like this and they jump into another one, whether it is another religion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or like wellness culture Mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that, that give again, a specific parameter of like, here's the things that you do. And it equals whatever this desired outcome is. Um, and, and I really think it's because that fundamentalism is still living inside of us. And unless we actually resolve what that is, we will continue to repeat these patterns and ways of It's thinking. like addiction, right? I mean, it pretty much is the same thing. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And that's why, like when I've worked with addiction clients and whatnot, we have to get to the root of it. And you know this, mm-hmm. like we have to get to like what was motivating that so mm-hmm. that we're not just addiction trading or I call it fundamentalist hopping, right? Like when I can understand what was motivating that, that actually gives me the possibility for freedom. Were there any books that were particularly helpful for you along your journey, specifically so- related to this, the religious aspect? This is, I I actually do not mean this as a plug for myself. There was no book. There was, there was none that was religious trauma related. Really? The first one will be coming out in October. Um, and I say that because I wrote it and I was asked to write it for that specific reason because there weren't resources. That said, I made that comment earlier, religious trauma is trauma. And so when we look at how it yeah. shows up in the body, there are some fabulous trauma research books that can be easily used and implemented. So anything all the the biggies. Yeah. Peter Levine, Judith Herman, Stephen Porges, like the there was yes. Yes. All the greats. All the greats. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it really like I said, so I mean obviously like people have written books on 
religious harm and stuff. But it really hasn't been until the last, honestly, since like 2016, that the idea of religion as a source of abuse or harm or pain or trauma is like being talked about in the wider conversation. And what so about cult wise? Like, are there some good like cult books, like overcoming yeah. cults, cults books? So there's a couple of books. Um, there's, well, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Hassan, H-A-S-S-E-N. He is the, cre- he's not the creator of, he talks about the bite model, B-I-T-E, which is, okay. um, his work is really good. Robert J. Lifton's work is really good. Like thought and mind control. Um, Yanya Lalich, which is J-A-N-J-A, I think, uh, wrote, she's really big in like, uh, kind of like the cult education. Um, there was one other book that I was thinking of. Anyways, there's some really great research that's been done on cults and high control groups and like the in, like thought control and reform and, and things like that. What I see as the missing piece or maybe incomplete, and this is not to their fault. This is just not their area of expertise uh-huh. is that the difference between walking away and saying like cognitively, I do not believe that anymore. And then understanding how those messages live in your body. Uh-huh. It's not dissimilar from what we've talked about with addiction. There's a difference uh-huh. between saying I'm not using this substance anymore. And then understanding like what that substance was providing for you or helping you numb out or giving you relief from, or, you know, whatever that was like, that's the deeper work. And so I really appreciate the work of people like, you know, Yanya Lalich and Robert J. Lifton and Stephen Hassan, there just wasn't the body piece of it. There mm-hmm. wasn't like the, the, the how this functions. And so it was just like a bit incomplete. So when we talk about like, there's not a lot of resources, there's been like great work by like Peter Levine and whatever, and great mm-hmm. work by like Stephen Hassan. We just haven't seen it like come Combined. together. Yeah. yeah. So where can people find you and what do you have going on? Thank you. That's a great Is your question. book written? It's, it's written, it's being edited. And in fact, I think it like is up for pre-order in like two weeks. Nice. So yeah, so my book is called When Religion Hurts You, Healing uh, from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. Um, it'll be out, out in October, but uh, pre-orders, I believe, start in March. Um, I also run the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, which we are um, online, exclusively online, and we do trauma coaching, specializing in religious trauma, healing from cults, adverse religious experiences, everything that we've been talking about today. All of the practitioners are trauma-informed and trauma-trained, and most of them have a background in mental health, but choose to practice instead as a coach. So um, So there's that. We are trauma resolution recovery.com or trauma resolution and recovery on Instagram. And then my own um, Instagram is Dr. Laura E. Anderson, and that's my website as well. And I do do some one on one work with clients. My schedule is fairly limited at this point, but I offer intensives for people who want to like maybe jump in or do like a deep dive, like really focusing on trauma for one day and then go back to your regular practitioner. I do a lot of consulting work with other professionals in the field who are looking to kind of hone in on their skills or work through specific client cases. And then of course I do one-on-one work, but I think, uh, I, I have to look, I think my schedule might be full. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I love chatting with you and we'll, yeah, I'll definitely look for your book to come out. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I appreciate this. And I love, thank you for having me because I, I really have enjoyed listening. I don't remember how I stumbled on your podcast. It must've been like through an Instagram story or something. I was like, Ooh, this looks like a good podcast. So I started listening. Yeah. Well, I know that I'll get through this. Cause I know that I am strong. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I know you heard something that you can relate to. And as always, if you didn't seek help and damn the join Patreon, we still got a po, a po, a po, a po. We still got a po, we still got a pulse, folks. Episode 100E1 in the books. Um, thanks again to Laura. That was lovely. Uh, go check out the show notes for all of her shit all of her shit showiness goodness um i am about to take my inner child on a walk without my phone without anything i told her when i was journaling that was one of the things that i said that i was going to do today cuz i realized like how am i am i creating the opportunities for my inner child to connect in with me if i am constantly on my fucking phone or constantly looking on the computer screen or watching TV. Um, so I've been trying to like take time where I'm not stimulated by anything just in case she needs to tell me some shit, you know, (laughs) that's what I keep telling her. I keep saying, Hey, I just want you to know that you can tell me anything that you need to tell me. You can tell me if you're sad or mad or hurt you can tell me whatever you need to tell me, and I promise I won't be upset. So uh, so me and little Andrea are about to take a little walkie-poo. So I'm adding this part in because when I was just listening to it and editing it, I remembered this. So when I was a kid, my, my uncle, my aunt and uncle, they it was a cassette tape. Um, it was like an Andrea cassette tape. So obviously these people, like, they made a like a recording for they just inserted everybody every kid's name but so this was like the one song it was like andrea's taking a walk today i've tried to like look it up to see if i can find it but that's all i can like remember but it'd be like andrea's dun 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 andrea's dun 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 okay that's not so good but this is the 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 main part is andrea's taking a walk today (laughs) just wanted to add that in um, and I don't really have anything else interesting to, to share with you all. I've, I've had a lot of time added back in my week as the, uh, Murdoch trial is over. Um, where are my reality peeps? My, my Bravo peeps. Can we talk about this Tom and Ariana and Raquel biz? When I start the new community, I'm definitely going to have a chat that is for, my um my shit show bravo horse so we can chat it up in there as well um and yeah i clearly watch a lot of tv (laughs) i love tv i don't think i could date some like i once went on a date with somebody and they didn't like own a tv they didn't like watch tv on their computer is that wrong but i really feel like i need well they don't need to be like as big of a tv person as me but i need them to like I can't date somebody who's like a TV snob, who's like, ugh, you watch TV? I'm like, yeah, fucking right I do. I fucking watch that TV all damn day. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I don't think I'm really adding anything useful here. Damn the join Patreon. Give me a damn five-star review. I know that there's plenty of you listening right now who haven't yet. If you don't know how to, ask me. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> don't you worry. I will tell you. I will send you a, a tutorial video if I need to. Um, and I will see you shit shows for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. Next week, it's going to be super raw, super mama. Super excited. If you're out of here, it's going to be a good day, I promise. Don't let